Welcome everyone, I am Michael, your host for Antediluvian Revelations, a poetic retelling of the Book of Enoch, the Prophet. This is the first segment of the revised summary discussion for Part 4, Interpreting Enoch's Allegorical Prophecies. It does not take a lot of effort to decipher Enoch's allegorical dream visions with precise correlation to Semitic history appearing in the Old Testament. The unknown editor's footnotes appearing in the 1883 edition were very helpful, but they were incomplete. There was more to the 1883 edition of Sir Lawrence's early English translation that made it the most reasonable choice for using it as a source document than its clearly legal availability to be used in this poetry. The unknown editor was also quite right about some of his attempted interpretations that appear in footnotes throughout his edition. The beginning of this sequence is pretty easy to follow with the story being about events already known from details presented in the main conflict of the epic story. The one important difference in the details of Enoch's visions that distinguishes this content from the tale Moses tells in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 7 is the concept of how the crossbreeding of extraterrestrial beings and human beings resulted in horrid mutations. The Mosaic text in the canonized Holy Bible says the Nephilim were heroes and that portrayal is an obvious example of pagan editorialization of the text. In Greek and Roman mythologies, the offspring of the gods and human females were heroes. According to Enoch's telling of it all, the offspring of the sons of God and human females were horrid mutations. The worst of all crimes against humanity was the alien interference in mankind's evolution, and the crossbreeding of extraterrestrial beings with human beings became the first and unauthorized CE6 event on Earth. The solution for the problem caused by these errant extraterrestrials was for God to send his true sons, the Elohim, to take all of those criminals into custody and wipe out their offspring with the catastrophic flood, a second CE6 event in human history. God also knew that the flood would only delay the inevitable decline of humanity into its current state of corruption when mankind will annihilate itself in an apocalyptic nuclear war because the third CE6 event of Messianic Prophet, Jesus Christ, did not have the results God wanted for mankind. Instead of following the teaching of the Christ to repent of sin, forgive each other, and live in peace, mankind has continued to sin, hate each other, and die in wars all over the world. The evidence of how those errant sons of God permanently affected the evolution of mankind by their unauthorized interference becomes even more obvious when the third CE6 event in human history only makes the corruption of humanity worse than it was before the advent of Jesus Christ. God's connection with mankind splintered into three separate ideologies which became the three religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The three separate religions resulted from the failed intervention event and the followers of these three religions continued to worship false gods and commit heinous acts of pagan idolatry. The offspring of the fallen watchers permanently infected humanity so that there would be no recovery for mankind from the path of self-annihilation. Instead of repenting in the hopes of having everlasting life and evolving to be peaceful, mankind has evolved to be hateful, murderous, and blasphemous, for which there is no further corrective action possible. Deliverance of this eternal truth message prior to Judgment Day will enable the fourth and final CE6 event in the history of mankind, but it will not have the purpose to prevent the inevitable. The message of God's eternal truth will serve to alert the faithful and guide them to a true faith in the one and only God of all the universe by preparing them 
or Judgment Day. But the wrath of God will become the only destiny for mankind, which will be a fiery, apocalyptic end in global thermonuclear war. The stubbornness of humanity and mankind's unwillingness to accept correction to the spiritual gift of prophecy presented by those who have rejected the pagan lies within the Book of Man will cause humanity to reject the message of God's eternal truth. Accepting this message will mean that all of humanity has been wrong about everything, and there has never been a correct understanding of God. None of those heretics and blasphemers will want to admit they were wrong, and they will have too much pride in the works of their hands to have the humility to repent. The point of Enoch's allegory that said this non-human space-bearing species acted as if they were horses and their offspring were camels, elephants, and asses was really all about how the fallen angels were never the same as human beings. There is a similarity between cows and horses, but they are clearly not the same species nor genetically compatible. Mating between two different humanoid bipedal species resulted in a horrid mutation and the same result is likely for cows and horses. Even dumb animals have the sense not to mate across species. Enoch includes himself and Noah in this allegory because they are the white cows selected to know what has happened. The foretelling of Noah's birth as an albino appears first in the allegory of him as a white cow, and the significance of this prediction will become more apparent in part five of the epic narrative. The building of the ark, the great deluge, and the dividing of the survivors into three tribes all correlate to the story Moses tells in Genesis. So this proves Moses had a source of information originating from Enoch. The allegory continues to be accurate with correlations to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, and Samuel. The poetry also presents a prediction of Elijah, the Tishbite. In this retelling, the allegorical descriptions transition to actual names for the benefit of the reader who might not otherwise understand any of the story if it were maintained according to the translation in the 1883 edition. Appearing in the poetic retelling, there is a curious jump through time that skips over a great deal of historical information after the time of Solomon. In fact, the jump takes the story to the 20th century and World War II, when Adolf Hitler persecutes the Jewish people. This event had not yet happened when Lawrence translated the Ethiopic manuscript, so the supporting text for this interpretation remains unaltered in the 1883 edition. This prophecy is extremely important and relevantly proves this entire part of the text, which comprises part 4, was not simply created much later in time by some unknown scribe pretending to be Enoch. There might have been some argument among agnostics and biblical scholars that this part of the book of Enoch the prophet had been written after the Semitic history events appearing in the allegory had already occurred. Denying the prophetic nature of the original text enabled theories that identified the originating time for this text was just prior to the advent of Jesus Christ or as much as 100 years afterwards. There is no validation of a theoretical argument claiming the Enoch story originated around 100 AD. There is a clear prediction of future events with the Jews being numbered, which did not happen until World War II when the fascist Nazis tattooed numbers on the arms of Jews between 1935 and 1945. 
None of the English translation of the Ethiopic text is as specific as it appears in this poetic retelling. However, the poetry has the purpose of interpreting the ancient story by providing a modern understanding of what it all means. Enoch prophesied the numbering of the Jews. It may be important for the reader to note that the leader and nation that persecuted the Jews ultimately failed in a bid to rule the world because God enabled other nations to defend his chosen people. History will repeat itself, but in an unexpected turn of events. The poetry reveals the various antediluvian revelations appearing within the ancient writing, and it also disproves any theory that this section of the ancient text was created after the fact to appear as though it were a prophecy. All of the text in the book of Enoch the prophet is prophecy about the Semitic people written before the time of Noah. The Ethiopic manuscript recovered in Assyria in 1773 includes passages that Noah may have contributed to the book about his own CE4 event, which corroborates Enoch's testimonial about transfiguration. This claim about Noah's contribution to the text of his great-grandfather's prophetic writings follows along with other scholarly proposed theories that this did happen. There is also the existence of evidence among the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been designated as the Book of Noah, and these scroll fragments are separate from the fragments of the Book of Enoch. The details appearing in the translations of the Dead Sea Scrolls Book of Noah may be found in the text of the Ethiopic manuscript of the Book of Enoch, as translated by Sir Richard Lawrence. It might not have been Noah's intent to curse the book of his great-grandfather by adding to it, but it had the effect of making some of the text a little confusing. It is not too difficult to infer from the curiously non-sequential text that Noah had the task of maintaining his great-grandfather's writings for the future generations the same as Methuselah and Lamech, and he might have considered his contribution to the work something meaningful to do while he waited for the floodwaters to recede and temperatures to rise enough to enable disembarkation from the massive ship that served as a rescue vehicle during the flood and a domicile afterward. Noah lived to be more than 1,000 years old, and he and his descendants most likely survived the post-comet cataclysm by reusing the materials of the ship. Archaeological aspirations to find the remains of Noah's Ark should become more understandably an exercise in futility. There is no practical reason to conclude that Noah and his family simply walked away from all of the lumber and materials that would have enabled their continued survival after the flood. It is simply idiotic to propose that Noah would have led the survivors away from the massive materials that were readily available for reutilization without having the practical consideration of how that ship was the source of their survival for years to come. Searching for the remains of Noah's Ark becomes as idiotic as searching for the Ark of the Covenant. Irrefutable evidence of either will never be found because the materials used for both of these historical relics were reutilized. This might also suggest that God supports recycling, and this is more true than can be easily explained. Enoch's Prophecies Validated Enoch's dream visions were prophecies, and these prophecies were not created later in history by some other author who tried to create a fake document as if it originated before the flood. Enoch told these tales to Methuselah before Noah was born, and all the information was memorized and passed down through the generations of descendants after Enoch's time. There is factually historical precedence proving that such stories were memorized as poetry and told two generations over a long period of time. Epic Poetry 
has always been an oral tradition of storytelling, which has been the impetus for the author's decision to present antediluvian revelations as a podcast reading. Enoch also prophesied in allegories because he could not prophesy the distant future with specificity. However, the reasonable correlations made in this retelling show that he did actually prophesy with specificity. The author's poetic interpretation of these allegories are based on the premise that these stories originated a long time before 100 AD. Other than the brief segment presenting Noah's testimony of being abducted by extraterrestrials, the stories Enoch told his son Methuselah originated in the lifetime of Methuselah. They were not fabricated later in time to create a fake prophetic document. Enoch was a true prophet of God Almighty, and his story contains the true words of God. An additionally significant prediction within this prophecy is that it says there will be three separate religions in Jerusalem, symbolized as three shepherds in white. Today, there are three religions represented in Jerusalem as it remains the holiest of holy places in the entire world. Two possible paths for the future of humanity appear within this prophecy as it continues in this part of the story. One outcome is that there will be a war that will cause the apocalypse and the end of the earth when these three religions refuse to come to an agreement for peace and acceptance of each other and God's eternal truth. The leaders of these religions choose to make war and kill each other rather than resolve their differences and bring an everlasting peace to the planet. The pridefulness of men will be the catalyst that causes global thermonuclear genocide, and God will destroy all life on planet Earth in an inextinguishable fire. The only prevention for this occurrence is for these men who come to power in the governments of the world to have humility, but they never will. They will all have too much pride in the works of their hands to admit their error and have humility before God. Therefore, these men will be the cause of mankind's destruction in global thermonuclear warfare. The leaders of these nations have already surrounded Jerusalem with their armies, which is the event Jesus Christ prophesied would occur prior to his second coming. See Luke chapter 21 verse 20. There will not be an eighth era for mankind. The other possible outcome is that these three separated religions will finally come together with the arrival in Jerusalem of Jesus Christ, who proclaims and validates God's eternal truth. Jesus Christ will complete the final angel path by having Gabriel's power to bring together heaven and earth for an untold number of eras of peace and prosperity. The mentioning of an eighth era is relevant where it appears in the sequence within this poetic retelling of the story because the eighth era of mankind is only a possibility of peaceful coexistence with an advanced species of extraterrestrials known as Elohim. The eighth era does not happen because mankind's evolution resulted in an inability to peacefully coexist with other species in the universe. And the cause of this has been the continued interference from an oppositional species of extraterrestrials who are clearly not the Elohim. Another version of the prophecy about the end of mankind appears in the New Testament book of John's Revelation, chapter 14, verse 14, which says, One like the Son of Man appears in a cloud with the message of God's eternal truth. The prophecy is the prediction of a CE5 event followed by the apocalypse. A CE5 event is communication between humanity and extraterrestrials, so it is easy to interpret the passage in Revelations to be a prediction of a CE5 event, with there being a message originating from an extraterrestrial source being presented to mankind. 
the interpretation of Enoch's prophecy in poetic format and the enhanced prophetic material that presents the sevenfold doctrine of God's eternal truth are both part of that communication. It should not be a surprise to anyone that such a communication has become necessary, and it is reasonable that there should be one source for this information. The source of God's eternal truth is most definitely not the Holy Bible, Jewish or Christian version, the Quran, or even the Book of Mormon. The source of God's eternal message is the Holy Spirit, which is truly an extraterrestrial originating entity. It might seem to the reader from all of this discussion that humanity is an unknowing participant in intergalactic conflict between two opposing forces of extraterrestrials, but that sort of thing only happens in the movies. Reality is more complex than anything George Lucas could have imagined, but this truth does not deny how science fiction may imitate reality more accurately than people tend to be willing to accept. Steven Spielberg's 1977 Close Encounters of the Third Kind is an imaginative cinematic portrayal of how a series of CE5 events evolved into a CE3 event, which is really more to the tune of a CE6 event by the end of the motion picture. It might be a little known fact that Spielberg and Heineck collaborated to portray the CE6 event without really understanding that the movie script went beyond a simple CE3 event with a climactic portrayal of a CE6 event. In Spielberg's version of the fictionalized occurrence of First Contact, humanity successfully makes peace with the Elohim on Judgment Day. Everyone is happy afterwards, and mankind has an enlightened future. Of course, that story is fiction, because that is not what is going to happen. According to Revelation chapter 11, verses 3-13, through 13, the prophetic witnesses are killed, and the whole situation becomes a train wreck which might also be several train wrecks, earthquakes, and volcanic eruptions that have already happened or will happen in the near future. The author adds this statement of verification to this fourth edition of this book that these calamities have happened in an unusually increased frequency since first writing and publishing the previous statement. There will be more occurrences of these signs as the Day of Judgment approaches because Uriel is the archangel who presides over the earth, the elements, and the luminaries of heaven. Revelation chapter 14 says that humanity refuses to accept the prophecy of eternal truth. Christ's second coming with the assistance of Gabriel's powers becomes a final CE6 event, and only the souls of the righteous and elect will be taken away in the rapture, which is immediately followed by global thermonuclear war and the apocalyptic end of all life on earth. According to the specifics in Revelation chapter 14, God commands the reaping angels to wipe out mankind, and that prophecy further describes the gory details of mankind's complete destruction. The apocalyptic end of mankind is the cure for a species that failed to evolve as peaceful, but God's plan includes salvation for the righteous souls of humanity. The innocent and the true believers of God's eternal truth will be taken away in the rapture because they have repented of the Catholic lies of pagan idolatry. They do not deserve to suffer the horrors of radiation sickness caused by the global contamination of radioactive fallout resulting from the use of nuclear weapons in a final war perpetrated by evil men who have no faith in God. Heaven and earth does not unite in peace with a unified acceptance of one God, 
as a result of humanity becoming a highly evolved nonviolent species. The second coming of Jesus Christ, who wields the powers of the Archangel Gabriel to bring heaven and earth together, will occur during the Holy War of the Apocalypse. God's judgment for all of humanity is that mankind is an evolutionary failure for being violently murderous, blasphemously hateful, and sexually immoral. The list of ignorantly evil and hostile behaviors goes on at great length. At the present time, it is quite obvious that mankind is doomed. Humanity has not evolved, nor will it ever evolve, to live peacefully without killing each other or visitors from elsewhere in the universe. Despite God's effort to communicate with humanity through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whose purpose was an intervention to inform mankind of the one true God and his gift of everlasting life in the Holy Spirit, humanity continues to be murderous by killing each other and any visiting alien species. The only way that heaven and earth will unite in this scenario which has become the current path for mankind is for the rapture to take the righteous into the heavens prior to and even during the apocalypse when many people will finally have humility and repent of their sin. Either way, the final stage of human evolution is the event of unifying heaven and earth on a spiritual level. The final evolutionary event for mankind could have occurred peacefully, but an evil alien species has interfered with human evolution resulting in the corruption nobody can deny exists in the world today. While they may attempt to plead for mercy when judged for their crimes on the Day of Judgment, the transgressing aliens, the souls of their offspring, and the one whose name may not be spoken in the presence of Almighty God, will never receive mercy for their crimes. The same fate and adjudication will be assigned to murderers and blasphemers, who refuse to repent of their paganized defiance of God's eternal truth. God is only one spiritually eternal and everlasting entity, and Jesus Christ was just a man. Well, that concludes this segment of the summary discussion of part four. The next episode will complete the summary discussion of part four. Be sure to subscribe for notifications of new releases. Thank you for listening. I am Michael.